You're listening to a People of Note podcast, as heard on Classic 1027. Good evening and a warm welcome to People of Note. This program is broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8, and in it I talk to someone who is a person of note and we listen to music of their choice. Tonight, by the wonders of modern science, I'm linking up to someone in the Western Cape, and this is a great new opening for people of note because I can talk to people anywhere in the world now, which is rather wonderful. Previously, they had to come into the studio. Tonight, I'm talking to David Bullard, who's somewhere in the wine lands of the Cape. Good evening, David. Good evening, Richard, and good evening, listeners. Yes, we are indeed in the wine lands in the Cape. We can't buy it, but we're here. We can watch it grow, but we can't enjoy the fruits. <laughs> so are you literally in a wine land somewhere? I'm actually on a wine estate. We, when we came down here in uh, 2013, we bought onto a residential wine estate and um, uh, called Croydon, which, of course, amuses everyone in England um, because uh, Croydon in England, um, outside London, isn't particularly known as a major wine area. But uh, we last year won the prize out of 94 wines for the best Cabernet, our 27 Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, beat many uh, very famous estates to be voted uh, on a blind tasting the best Cabernet. So we're on a pretty good wine estate. Well, that's um, wonderful. It's not huge, um, about 43 hectares of which I suppose about 15, 20 are laid out to wine, maybe less than that. But we produce um, a decent amount of wine and, and a decent quality of wine as well, which is very nice. And we do manage to get hold of a little bit of it as we as we own it. So we're not we're not quite as badly off as people who literally have to go to a bottle store and buy it. And but right now in lockdown, of course, you can't get any. Well, technically, well. <laughs> no. technically no. Since I'm a joint owner um, of the wine estate, a one two hundred fifth owner. I sort of could wander down to where it's stored and and transfer it, but we haven't done that. No, we've been very careful. I have to. I mustn't joke because there's a license involved. We've been meticulous about not selling wine, sadly, which is a pity. But I fortunately have reasonably good stock. So unless I become a complete um, wino in the next uh, few weeks, um, we should be okay for a little bit longer. But I think it's very tough. Uh, it's very tough on the industry down here, particularly tough on the winemakers, tough on us because we actually have to move the stock that we've got to make way for the stock that's currently in barrels and will be in bottles. So that's the problem that every wine wine estate has. You have to get rid of uh, your stock. You have to sell it to make room in the uh, in the store space after the cellar's been emptied for the for the next vintage, and so on and so on. Yeah. Tough and life. David, for those who perhaps don't know you, other than being someone who lives on a wine estate, perhaps just give us a thumbnail sketch of who David Bullard is. Yes, the notorious David Bullard. Well, I, I actually came out to South Africa in 1981. Um, I was uh, educated and brought up in the UK and, and started work in the financial markets in about 1971. It gets um, hazy now. And then I was uh, I hosted a South African um, who came over to London to find out how we did things there. And um, cut a long story short, he offered me a job. Uh, eventually, I decided to to come out to South Africa for a, a, for a couple of years in 1981, and and I'm still here. Um, so well, it's a fantastic uh, story. Yeah, you know, I, I got married and then we had a debt standstill and I became a currency hostage and all the rest. But in fact, I wouldn't have gone back anyway. Um, I, it, I love this place. It's, it's a gorgeous country. Um, for all its uh, all its problems and faults, it is probably the only place in the world that I would want to live. Um, then I, I started uh, working in the financial markets here. I started my own company trading bond options in uh, 1987. Um, and then I started writing a column for the Sunday Times in... 1994, just before the election. As I always said, it's, um, Colin was older than democracy itself. Uh, that ran for 14 years, and I had a rather sudden removal from the Sunday Times, as you may remember. Um, and the column then transferred to a few online publications and is currently running on Politics Web every Wednesday. So the Answer Lunch column is uh, alive and well 26 years later. And and how and do I've people been. find it? Do they go to? Is there a website oh, yeah. where you go to Politics, Politics Web? Web is there. It's behind a paywall, but Politics Web has been around for about fifteen years, twelve, fifteen years, um, and it uh, it contains. Well, it generally has some some pretty high quality writing uh, 
R.W. Johnson and uh, Jeremy Gordon, uh, Andrew Donaldson, um, William Saunderson Mayer, some very good stuff, obviously slightly politically linked. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's a superb website um, and it doesn't really uh, doesn't really have any censorship, self-imposed censorship, which is quite nice. So you are allowed to sort of write things and say things that perhaps would not be allowed to appear in, in normal mainstream media because of the fear of losing advertising. Um, so that appears every Wednesday or Tuesday, Wednesday um, on politicsweb.co.za. Very good. Well, we'll come back to that in due course. But of course, you've got much more to your life as well, because you're a great music lover. And you will talk us through your various choices, the first of which yeah. is by the great Johannes Brahms. That was part of the second movement of the Brahms Requiem, Den alles Fleisch, es ist wie Gras. And the choice of David Bullard, a columnist and uh, a liver in a wine estate in the Western Cape. Uh, David, just tell us a bit about Brahms, because I think that was the last concert you heard before lockdown. It was, and it was, uh, it was conducted by Johann de Villiers at the Endler Auditorium um, on the last Sunday before basically lockdown. Um, I think you had a concert down here which didn't go ahead. I did. Um, that was the last night of the proms, yeah, and we did yeah, the rehearsals but fine. not the concert. That's right. Well, no, this was the Sunday we went there and I thought rather arrogantly that I'd probably heard all the great music that was needed to be heard. And I realised um, just you know, a few minutes into this, particularly into the sort of second movie which we just played, that I had no idea. I didn't know the Brahms Requiem. And I was amazingly moved. And I, I wrote to Johan to thank him very much, or actually wrote to the choir. Uh, website to thank them very much and say what a wonderful experience it had been, particularly as we were locking down and were unlikely to go to any live music for, for many months to come. And he very kindly came back and told me some of the background to the, the music and, uh, and and how moving it had been for him. I find it the most incredible work. I mean, it, really, it brings tears to my eyes. Um, there's a very good YouTube one with uh, Claudio Bardo, um, which you can watch the whole lot all for free um, if you're unfamiliar with it. But I think it is, Richard. Oh, it's so nice to discover another work in your 60s, which you, you don't know, you know, and which moves you greatly. I mean, I, I just think that's the power of music, isn't it? It is. Now, just give us an idea, because obviously you've uh, been around. You've, your choice of music is very wide. It involves opera and orchestra music, but also a lot of choir music. Did you sing in a choir ever in your youth? I did. I did. I didn't sing in the choir. You know the school I went to because you knew my music master, Philip Hill. I was at Seaford College near Chichester, and you were at Chichester as well. That's right. Um, and uh, I didn't sing in the choir there. But when I was living in London, um, there was an advert in the Times. Uh, they wanted to augment the choir for the dream of Gerontius, to be sung at the Royal Albert Hall. And it was Bart's Hospital Choir, um, St. Bartholomew's Hospital Choir. And, uh, and, and my girlfriend at the time and I thought, this sounds great. So we actually, we enlisted, we were auditioned, we were judged to be not that bad. Um, and, uh, and we rehearsed um, somewhere in London, I can't quite remember. And then on the great night, we went there and performed in the Albert Hall. And, and it was most fantastic. It's another work that I've loved for, for, for ages, which is why we answered the advertisement to go along. So the answer is yes. Not only have I sung in a choir, but I've performed at the Royal Albert Hall as well. Wow. And that's quite a work to, to launch your choral career, because it's not easy yeah. by any means. It's not no, it's not easy, but it's exciting, and particularly the Demon's Chorus. It's very exciting. And, and look, I mean, the solo parts are absolutely glorious as well, and that sweeping music. I mean, Elgar really is his best. I, you know, I also enjoy The Kingdom, um, but not as much as, uh, as Durantius. But it, it is one of those also incredibly moving pieces, and uh, it's something I just sort of discovered when I was quite young. Uh, and then, as I say, you know, when the chance to sing in it came along, I thought, well, you know, that's, you get more involved. I mean, you know much better than I do uh, about that. But I think what I feel so sad about at the moment, Richard, with lockdown is the members of the choir that we often go and see in, in the Endler Auditorium at Stellenbosch, it, it's very much a, uh, a bonding thing, isn't it? Camaraderie, there's an incredible closeness among choir members. You can tell people are enjoying the social engagement as well as the singing. For that not to be happening must be 
tremendously, tremendously hard on people. No, it you is. Know, you can't, and, uh, can't uh, link up on Zoom and sing together on Zoom, can you? Yeah, because one of the things about singing in a choir is the social uh, interaction, and that's all gone, of course. And, I mean, it's yeah. all very well doing it electronically, but there's, you know, very little connection between people. Let's just, while we're talking about Elgar, I see one of your choices is the fabulous Nimrod from the Enigma Variations. And yes. let's play that now. Here it comes. This is Nimrod from the Enigma Variations by Sir Edward Elgar. That was the wonderful variation Nimrod from the Enigma Variations by Edward Elgar. And just to explain the name, Elgar's publisher was a man called Jaeger, which is in German a huntsman. And Nimrod, of course, was the mighty huntsman that we read of in the Bible. So that was the connection he he reflected on, on all his friends in the Enigma Variations and tried to picture them in music. It's a fabulous piece, the Enigma Variations. It is. And, and I thought I'd better throw an Englishman in amongst all the other foreigners there, you know. <laughs> we want to be a bit patriotic. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, just think, I think it's glorious. I, I, I do enjoy Elgar's music enormously. Um, and I find, I mean, Nimrod is just such a glorious piece. Well, and, and the, the Dream of Gerontius is almost like, it's very operatic in a way. And I noticed that quite a lot of your choices are opera. Now, where does this love of opera come from? Well, it actually comes from, uh, really from when I was growing up, from my parents. And my father, who was very, um, I mean, he really, he, he came from a very working class background. And they lived in a, what was known as a council house in, in England. And the toilet was in the garden. Um, you know, I'm always very amused when one's accused of white privilege, when you then go back one generation and say, well, didn't look terribly privileged at the time. He, he, when he came back from the war, he eventually got a job uh, also in banking and decided that he would like to improve himself and I think joined um, a bit like a book of the month club, it was like a record of the month club and started acquiring records and, and found a love of classical music, which he would then play at home and and I also then, you know, not everything, but I also discovered a love of classical music. He wasn't quite as much into Wagner as as, uh, as I was, but he certainly introduced me to the Chilea piece that we will hear at some stage. And he was very into Puccini and he was into um, orchestral pieces. And I think another piece I chose was the Fantasia um, on a theme by Thomas Tallis, which he lent me the record. And when I went back to school, I used to play that record in the evening and go to sleep to it in my study because, I mean, I just think that is unbelievably beautiful, that, uh, that Vaughan Williams piece. So it really came from, from, came from uh, my father. And my mother was keen as well, but my father was in, uh, seriously enthusiastic and bought in those days what was known as a radiogram, which was a huge piece of furniture. And it was the first piece of stereo. You remember, Richard, that they used to stamp stereo on the top right of a record? Yeah, I remember. So it. I he was one of the first to get a stereo radiogram, which was this fast piece where speakers were there. So you had to sit exactly in the right place to get the, the effect. Um, all of that, of course, now completely redundant. Now we have ear pods. Yep. Now, you mentioned uh, Chilea and Adriana Le Couvreur, and uh, you've chosen one of the uh, sections from Act Two, L'Anima Stanca, and that's what's coming up right now. That was music by Chilea from Adriana Le Couvreur, and it's the choice of David Bullard. Um, David, this opera, we don't, you don't often hear this opera, I have to say, not here anyway. No. Now, I, Richard, this is an interesting one, as I said, something my father introduced me to because he discovered it, and I call it Puccini Extension One. Chilea didn't write an awful lot that was ever performed, and this, this was included. Um, I think Chilea died in 1950. It was sort of almost a contemporary or a later contemporary of Puccini. Um, and it, it is absolutely glorious piece, very convoluted plot. I mean, I couldn't even begin to explain what's happening in the piece we've just listened to, other than he's seeing one woman who he's not supposed to be seeing. He's got some flowers for her, but the other woman is jealous. You know, this sort of, sort of stuff that it tells Typical opera, opera stuff, it, yeah. Yes, absolutely, typical stuff. And they probably die of consumption in the end as well. But um, it, it's a beautiful opera all the way through um, and, uh, and very lucky to sort of have discovered it. And I'm sure that listening to that piece there, many will agree and hopefully will go and discover it as well. Yeah. 
Now, the other piece you mentioned when we were talking just before was the Fantasia on the theme of Thomas Tallis, which is a very different type of music altogether. And in fact, um, Vaughan Williams sort of established a more English style of music with this very piece, the Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis, based on a beautiful hymn uh, which Vaughan Williams had put into the English hymnal. He he edited uh, the English hymnal in 1906, I think it was, and he came across this tune by Thomas Tallis and worked it into this amazing fantasy which you listened to in your study at school. Uh, I wonder what the other boys thought about fantasias on a theme by Thomas Tallis at that time. I think they were probably playing Black Sabbath at the time, but um, <laughs> as I was uh, more senior, I told them to turn their music down because um, I was listening to this. That was it, you know, it's a case of, of good, good old-fashioned school bullying. Well, we're going to listen to it now, and then I want to know how you went from, from being a financial uh, dealer in bonds to becoming a writer. So here it comes first. This is the Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis by Rafe Vaughan Williams. That was the wonderful Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis by Rafe Vaughan Williams, the choice of David Bullard, who's my guest on People of Note tonight. And many of you listeners, I'm sure, will have known of David Bullard because he used to have a column in the Sunday Times. How did you get to that from being uh, a financial dealer, David? Well, it's kind of an interesting story because um, when I was in the financial markets um, and uh, around about 93, 94 time, it was actually 93, Christmas 93, I used to put up comments on a thing called a Reuters screen, which was sort of fairly cheeky. In fact, the Reuters screen in many ways, Rich, was, was the forerunner to Twitter because I had a limited amount of characters that you could put up. So I would put up some pithy message for the day. And it got quite well known. It was the K-N-O-W, known as the no screen. So we got a code K-N-O-W. And virtually everyone in the market looked at it, which, of course, for our own business was quite good because it got us noticed and, and talked about. So, in fact, it was very good for promoting business. However, 1993, I was invited to a Christmas party at Julie Walker's house, and she was writing for the Sunday Times. And Kevin Davey, who was the editor at that stage of the Business Times, during the evening, which was you know quite festive, said, "Why don't you come and write a column for the Sunday Times?" So I slurred, "Well, are you going to pay me?" And we left it at that. <laughs> we got together in January, and it started, as I said, in in April, um, March or April, April. We did do the thing. It was initially, I think, fortnightly, um, and I thought that it might last three three months, six months. And I started writing on sort of finance. Then I thought that was a bit boring. I wavered off into other things and I started making jokes and started doing a little bit of satire and whatever else. And that's how it started. It became a weekly column quite quickly um, and it built up a readership to what the Sunday Times claimed at one stage and its peak was 1.7 million readers a week, which even allowing for some exaggeration is quite good. Let's say it was half that, yeah. 800,000. Um, but no, I mean, the column basically covered all things and, and produced um, three books when I was at the Sunday Times. Yeah, you know, the one first of, came yeah, one of which I, I still have, uh, which I read occasionally. I pick it up and I read it. And it's amazing how prescient your uh, columns were, because a lot of what you were talking about there actually sort of came to pass. Uh, and I'm amazed when I read it now, because it must be what, how many years ago? It must be 20 well, years ago. The yeah. first book, uh, Out to Lunch, um, which was the blue cover one, which from 1996. And I also go back and read them and think, God, all you would do is just exchange some of the names. I the, know. The same category is still there. Yeah. Uh, but as they say, Richard, a prophet is without recognition in his own newspaper or <laughs> land or whatever it was. <laughs> but uh, no, the, so when the book came out in 2002, um, uh, Doug Band, who was a, a leading businessman at the time, persuaded Jonathan Ball that he should do a, a, a collection of the columns. And that came out in, in November of tw 2002. And within three weeks was the number one bestseller 
on the exclusive books list, which of course is exactly the sort of thing that you need to annoy fellow columnists and the fellow journalists. And they then start spitting and it's very much a tall poppy syndrome, as you know, journalism. He didn't even go to journalism school and he's got a book on the number one. I was very chuffed, I must say, and I have to say also that all the royalties of all the books have all gone to charity, and I think we probably donated about 420,000 rand to various charities. Well, that's a fantastic so, story, too. So, so that, was a good, that was a good setting point, incidentally, because when you wanted to get a corporate to buy a whole load of copies as Christmas gifts, you say, David Bullard's getting none of the money. Oh, well, that's all right, then we'll take 300. <laughs> So that gave you a certain uh, fame, but also brought some, uh, the column, I mean, brought you some notoriety as well, because you were not afraid of a little controversy now and then. No, I think that's very well put. Now, and much the same now. I, I think, you know, this whole thing of cancel culture and, and telling people what they're allowed to think, there are laws which stop you libeling people and stop hate speech, and they're quite right to have those. On the other hand, I think that one should be allowed to actually tell tell it as it is, put it that way, and to make jokes. I mean, and to use a little bit of irony and satire and whatever. And that um, is what some people choose to ignore. They say, oh, no, this is offensive because, you know, either I don't understand it or I don't like the, the nature of the joke, etc. None of that has changed, I'm happy to say, with the current columns. And I'm pretty much given free reign by uh, by James Meyerberg, who's my politics web editor, to, to write whatever I like, you know, with, within legal reason. But I do think one does need to sort of, um, uh, particularly in the current political climate, tell it like it is. And as you say, Richard, going back there, I was doing it back then. It, it was, you know, I used to get a lot of hate mail. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, and not everyone loved the column. Quite a lot of people did, but quite a lot of people didn't as well, uh, particularly members of the ruling party. Yeah, and in fact... Um uh, that's what caused your downfall in the end. Well, not your downfall, but your removal from uh, the newspaper was a great argument about that. And perhaps let's listen to your next piece of music, which is appropriate. It's from uh, Karl Orff's Carmine Burana about the, the fortune or misfortune. It's called O Fortuna. Here it comes. That was O Fortuna from Karl Orff's Carmine Burana, the choice of David Bullard, who's my guest in People of Note. And David, when, when that crunch came at the end, when you were fired or removed from uh, the paper, was it yes. unexpected or had you expected something like that? I, I had been going through a phase where I was very unhappy with um, what was happening at the Sunday Times. Um, you may remember I also for seven years wrote a motoring column for them. And they started heavily editing the motoring column, cutting it back, um, basically taking away, you know, when you write a column, particularly a, a car review, you put hopefully a fair amount of work into it and it has to flow. When they start cutting 300, 400 words without consulting you, the article that you wrote in initially bears no resemblance to what appears on the page. And you tend to find that the motor manufacturers come back and say, what did you say that for? You know, and I was getting blamed by a lot of motor manufacturers for stuff that I actually hadn't written or that had been left out. So I was not going through a great phase with the Sunday Times and I, I withdrew my services as a motoring editor, which I think annoyed them hugely because they were getting a lot of advertising coming in. Um, and then we, in the in 1994, um, Esop Pahad um, had, um, no, 99, sorry, where are we going, we're going forward to the second, 2008, 2008, yeah. Esop Pahad had threatened to withdraw all ANC advertising from the Sunday Times um, about three weeks earlier. And I think basically they needed a sacrificial lamb. Um, I think they needed to say, listen, you know, we're not the newspaper you think we are. We'll get rid of this guy. And there'd been a lot of, as I say, criticism from the ANC I'd, I'd written um, prior to that. Um, some fairly, fairly damning articles about corruption and odd tenders, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that that's really what happened. So it, it didn't come as a great surprise to me. The method, um, the means of which it was done came as a bit of a surprise. And the fact that the article appeared in a newspaper which does actually have an editor and sub-editors, I mean, why publish something if, you, if you're going to sack the guy for writing it? So <laughs> it didn't set a particularly good precedent for freedom of speech. But hey-ho, that's the way things go. And I, I fortunately went on after that to, to write for other people. So it wasn't yeah. like, you know, it wasn't like the end of a career. Yeah. It was the end of a newspaper. 
Yeah. Well, and I was going to say, and look look at the newspapers now. You're still around, but most newspapers are just sort of feeble copies of what they used to be. I'm glad you said that because I do feel that, as many people have said to me, you know, the Bullard brand value is worth a lot more than the Sunday Times brand value these days. Yeah. And uh, it is uh, some years, yeah, 12 years later, I'm still writing the Out to Lunch column. So, yeah. hey-ho. Um but, you know, the writing about cars was great fun as well. I mean, I did that, as I say, for seven years, and we did a TV program, Car Talk. In fact, I remember picking you up in a Mini just to see whether you fitted in it. I remember um, that well, and you, I even featured in your column because you talked about me nibbling my knees, I seem to remember. Exactly. Well, <laughs> I remember, I thought, if you're going to test a car, particularly a Mini, go and get the tallest person you know and say, get in the car, we're going for coffee. And it worked very well. And you did nibble your knees. I did. I remember it well. Well, you didn't buy many. I bet. You've been talking about uh, falling out with people. So your next choice is also appropriate. This is the famous duet from the Pearl Fishers, where they pledge their their loyalty to each other. Two men are in love with the same woman. They say, no, this is not a problem. We're still loyal to each other, but it all ends in tears in the end. It's the famous Pearl Fisher's duet, Au Fond du Temple Saint by Bizet. That was the wonderful Pearl Fisher's duet from uh, Bizet's opera called The Pearl Fisher's about the two men who are in love with the same woman. The choice of David Bullard, my guest in People of Note. David, I notice that your next choice uh, is a rather gentle piece by Gabriel Faure. And you obviously like the Requiems because you've got three in your choices, Brahms, Faure and Mozart. It's, it's a bit uh, bit gloomy, isn't it? I do actually love Requiems, Richard, I have to say. I, I think, you know, I want to listen to them while I'm still alive rather than have them played after I'm dead. So I think that's quite a sort of sound policy, uh, quite honestly. But uh, no, uh, the Fauré one is, is absolutely glorious. The most, well, they're all glorious. I mean, they, they do different things, don't they? Um, yeah. And death you know, obviously even, inspires people. I mean, I know, so, so you and I, I know, have discussed Britain's War Requiem, which is a sort of a requiem with other bits uh, of, of Wilfred Owen poem thrown in. But I always love uh, Dias Ires, loud ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, but this is anything but loud. This is the no, in paradiso. Yeah. And and it sounds as though you are where you are at the moment, in the wine fields in the Western Cape, somewhere in paradise. Maybe that's your idea of heaven, is it? Yes, I think it pretty much is. It, it doesn't get yeah, it doesn't get much better than this, I must say, particularly on a gloriously sunny day. Yeah. Now in paradisum is pretty much sums it up, I would say. Here it comes. That was In Paradisum from The Requiem by Gabriel Faure, the choice of my guest in People of Note, David Bullard. That's the program you're listening to, People of Note, on Classic 1027. It's broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. And it's wonderful to be able to talk to people now anywhere in the world because since lockdown, we've set up new systems here at Classic 1027 so that we can talk to people anywhere in the world. So... If you've got any suggestions of someone you'd like to hear on this program, then please write to me. My email is my name, R-C-O-C-K, at iafrica.com, rcock at iafrica.com. And if you want to pass on any comments to uh, David Bullard, David, would you prefer them to send them to me or can they write directly to you? Um, send them to you, probably. Yes. Um, and then... And send them on, yes. I see, yeah, so send me your comments, rcock at iafrica.com, and then I will pass them on to David Bullard, and he can answer them if he feels it's appropriate. David, we're moving into new territory now in your choices, and that is Wagner. And I know that you're a big Wagner fan because you and Rodney Trudgeon are my two friends who are both incredible Wagner fans. Yes, Um it's it's a bit of a sickness, really, I think, regarding my other people who are into music. You, I know, recently got into one, and I'm delighted to hear it. Which one? Was it Lohengrin? Lohengrin, yes. Lohengrin. Now, it, it is worth persevering. Um, I've got two or three people um, uh, who I've um, turned on, shall we say, like a drug dealer to Wagner. And they frequently send me emails or tweets saying, thank you so much for introducing us to Wagner. It, it, it's wonderful. And once that sort of, it, once that door's been opened, you know, uh, and you learn to appreciate it, and it does, I say, 
require a little bit of perseverance. It's just studying. I mean, I can listen to Parseval hundreds of times and and never be bored. And I can listen to The Ring, uh, not all of it, I have to say, but I can listen to the high points, shall we say, of The Ring and, and, and enjoy it every time. And I just think it's just so stunning. And we've been also to Bayreuth um, four times, very lucky. Uh, Jackie and I have been to, well, I've been three times, she's been four times. And that's something of a, an experience as well, where you just literally in this uh, German town, its sole purpose is to perform Wagner operas for the next, um, well, the time you're there. It's a six-week festival not taking place this year, sadly, but you're there for probably about 10 days and you see seven operas in 10 days. Well, and Glorious I know, experience. and Rodney has been there several times too. It's a sort of like a pilgrimage that uh, Wagner lovers go on. And you're very yes, lucky to have been there. When yes, you... there's, a normally, there's normally a, a, a huge interval between the first and second act, and then everyone queues for um, sausages and beer. And I always used to crack the joke until this very long queue for the sausages. I said, the worst is yet to come. <laughs> it's a German joke, yeah? <laughs> I'm sure that went down like a lead balloon. Went down very well there. I like, I like English humour, you know. And so the, the excerpt that you've chosen is from Tristan and Isolde, O sink her nieder Nacht der Liebe. So sink again, night of love. Uh, and Tristan and Isolde is an incredible love story. Uh, can, you, can you set the scene for us for this particular bit? Well, well not really. No, I mean, it's, it's second act, isn't it, I think? Yes. And, um, and it is glorious love music i mean i think you'll hear that orchestra welling up and and the whole the whole thing it, it builds right up it's a tragic story as usual with with wagner um but uh, it's this most incredibly beautiful love duet which don't exist to any great extent in wagner operas but i mean i just no it's just it just one of the most beautiful pieces here it comes from tristan and isolde by richard wagner the choice of david bullard that was the wonderful, or one of the wonderful, love duets between Tristan and Isolde from uh, the opera of that name by Wagner. And it's chosen by my guest, who's sitting in the winelands of the Cape, David Bullard. David, you mentioned in passing your wife, Jackie, who's also a journalist. Well, she was. Yeah, she was at Financial Mail for a long while. She retired actually 10 years ago. Um, but she was um, the, she ran their online operations. She's also written as well, but she was uh, she spent a lot of time in Financial Mail, um, and she was with Finance Week for a little bit. But she was more on the sort of like production side than than on the writing side. And is she she's in a very good editor? And so if I write anything, including a shopping list, she said you need a comma there. There's two P's in that word. <laughs> you know that very irritating. And are you both managing to keep yourselves busy during this lockdown period by writing and reading and surfing the net? Yes, I think so. It, it's, look, it's quite lonely not seeing friends and not seeing people. Um, we're very lucky to be, you know, we're allowed out within our own province. And there's plenty of things to do, as you know, within the Western Cape. In fact, I went to Ferkelirchen last week. Um, we went to walk around there, which I know you know very well. And it was glorious, and Stable's restaurant was socially distanced, and it was almost like normality, except that, you know, you, you can't get a glass of wine with your lunch, and you have to wear a mask when you're not eating. Um, but it's, we're sort of, we're getting there. Look, we, it's, it's worse in Melbourne, as we know at the moment, and, it, and England seems to be veering from panic to other panic, etc. So the, the interesting thing about this whole COVID thing, Richard, is that you can't look enviously overseas and say, God, I wish I lived there with perhaps the possible exception of Iceland, which you may not wish you lived in. <laughs> yeah, Iceland's not high on my list, although I believe it's a beautiful place. Have you travelled much, David? I have. I have not to Iceland, but I have travelled. I was, You know, when I was doing this motor journalism, I mean, that is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do, and I feel very sorry for motor journalists at the moment. At one stage, Richard, I was overseas sometimes twice a month, uh, and motor companies always fly you down the sharp end. I mean, not necessarily first class, although that had happened, but certainly business class. And you get put up in the most glorious hotels. And um, on various launches, you know, you're driving a 7 Series BMW or a new Porsche Turbo or something like that. 
Um, so I was very lucky that I traveled around a fair amount with motoring journalism, including like to, I've been to Japan uh, with Toyota, I've uh, been to Taiwan, I've been to uh, Vietnam on, a, on another trip, on a travel trip. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've not been to South America and I've been to Australia several times, haven't been to New Zealand, but I've been very, very fortunate um, that I've had a lot of, shall we say, business in inverted commas, yeah. connected travel. And then Jackie and I have also, you know, done uh, the usual stuff of when we were able to do that, renting a villa in Italy and going on a holiday with the entire family, which sounds terribly grand, but in fact was cheaper at one stage than staying in the local Protea Hotel would have been for seven yeah. days. So your, your writing career has actually uh, opened up all sorts of new vistas for you in terms of travel, much more so than your business career. Yes, uh, very much so. The business career was very uh, Joburg um, and uh, Cape Town uh, bound. You know, it wasn't an international career at all. So most of our clients were in uh, were in Joburg. They were the banks, and then obviously the the, the funds, the pension funds, etc., were down in down in Cape Town. So there was no travel. It wasn't sort of glamorous, um, you know, like international banking is. So it really, yeah, the travel really came with with the writing. And what I did. Um, you know, once I started writing, I wrote the column in 1994 when I was still running my company. I joined the Sunday Times sort of full time in 1997, but I had to invent jobs for myself. So in the case of the motoring, I went to the editor of the lifestyle section. I said, no one seems to be writing about cars, which is crazy because motor companies invest, uh, uh, put a lot of money into advertising. So normally there'd be a huge queue of spotty faced young men wanting to drive fast cars. Um, there was no queue at all at the Sunday Times, and I got the gig, as they say. And so it was it was dead easy. Then I thought, well, if I've done this, I can also do travel, can't I? So I did travel writing, and I did a, I did actually once review a performance at um, at Bayreuth. Uh, no, no, no one else on, on the Sunday Times capable of doing it. So when I came back from one of the trips, I actually reviewed one of the performances, not from any highfalutin musical thing, but really from the experience of having gone there, yeah. etc. So. Yeah, I was very fortunate. I mean, I, I look back with great affection. I had 10, 12 wonderful years at the Sunday Times. Um, and I had a lot of good friends there. It was a fantastic opportunity. It was a pity that it ended as it did. But, you know, these these things, as we say, happen. The, yeah. the best part was the 12 great years. Yeah. And in passing there, you, you talked about um, eating. And I noticed that your next choice is from Belshazzar's Feast, uh, a wonderful piece by William Walton, and it's one of the choruses, then sing aloud to God our strength. That was from William Walton's Belshazzar's Feast, one of the choruses near the end, then sing, sing aloud to God our strength, the choice of David Bullard, my guest in People of Note, and talking of feasts and eating, aren't you something of a cook also, David? Well, I'm, I'm not a great chef, but I am very keen on food and I do enjoy um, preparing food. I don't go to the sort of huge lengths of marinating something for seven days or, or, or pickling something, whatever else. I quite like the Italian way of getting fresh ingredients, putting something together and having a, a very nice lunch or a dinner with a nice bottle of wine. But uh, I do, obviously down here, Richard, we have fantastic restaurants and I really do enjoy, and when we came down here, particularly enjoyed going around the list of the top 10 eat-out restaurants, most of which were more, no more than 20 minutes from where we live. <laughs> so I, I appreciate great food. I really enjoy going out, really enjoy eating and every so often, quite enjoy cooking it at home. In fact, under lockdown, there hasn't been much of an alternative, really, has there? So no. it's, it's duck again tonight, I'm afraid. <laughs> Have you ever thought of writing a food column or a restaurant column? I did actually, funny enough, write a food column um, for, uh, I think it was for Wine magazine. And I was told that um, I needed to be nastier. And I said, well, if I'm going to be nasty, because that's what people wanted to read, they wanted to read something which sort of completely um, ruined the reputation of the restaurants. It means I'm going to have to go out to really bad restaurants and give them a crap review. And I said, that seemed to be defeating the point of the thing. So I didn't write a food, a food column for very long because the editor at the time wanted me to go out and be snide and to, and to basically 
um, wreck someone's business, even if it was a reasonably good restaurant. You know, you had to sort of say, uh, and, and the sound say wasn't cooked all the way through and the service was terrible and they spilt wine all over my partner. So it's it's quite a difficult one to do because I think, you know, if you're writing a food review, you've got to remember that someone is actually, that's someone's business. And I think food reviews, you need to go to a restaurant two or three times. One very good friend of mine was the late Linda Stafford, who wrote wonderful food reviews for Finance Week um, and was was tremendous. And, and one of the fairest as well. You know, she would not make a judgment based on one trip. She'd say, well, maybe that was just a bad performance. Let's go back again. Difficult thing to do, though. I, I would rather eat it than write about it, to be honest. Yeah. Well, you, you may be amazed to hear that, I, as you know, I live in Parkhurst in Johannesburg and we went for a walk on Sunday. Parkhurst and all the restaurants there were absolutely humming. Forget social distancing, they were really humming. So uh, food and eating out is starting to happen again, I'm happy to say, certainly in Joburg. I'm delighted to hear that because, you know, it's been very difficult for them. And I think if people can go and support, I think that, you know, you lose a little bit of the atmosphere if you can't have a glass of wine or a beer or something yeah. like that. But uh, the fact that people are down there and, and uh, supporting that, and it's, it's a nice village atmosphere, isn't it, in Parkhurst? There is. And I guess you can probably serve interesting things in teapots anyway. So, <laughs> Or you should say that. I wonder if anyone's thought of that. I'm sure they haven't. <laughs> now, talking of <laughs> connoisseurs, uh, here comes something for the connoisseurs. This is Beethoven and his piano concerto number four. And it's the fabulous second movement where Orpheus tames the beasts. The wonderful second movement of the piano concerto number four by Beethoven. Uh, do you have an affinity for any particular composer other than Elgar? I know you like Elgar and Wagner, but here, what about um, Beethoven? No, I, I mean, I love Beethoven. And um, I think I once told you the story. I had the, uh, uh, the symphonies, all the symphonies, and Rodney Trojan came around for dinner one night and had a look at my CD collection and immediately started tutting. Um, and um, I thought, well, you know, what, what's, Rodney, what's the way? He said, oh, he said, you've got von Karin. No, you can't have that. You must give that away. You must, you must get rid of that. You must get the Simon Rattle version, which, of course, naturally I had to do. So, um, you know, the answer is don't invite Rodney Trudgeon around for dinner and let him see your CD collection because it's going to cost you a lot more than the price of the dinner. Well, and I know that he has a collection of, I don't know, 54 different versions of the Ninth Symphony, I think. So, I mean, you're talking to a real expert there. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the problem. No, but uh, look, he was absolutely right. Um, but uh, I was quite, I was quite proud of my, uh, my, my von Karajan Beethoven's, but uh, I enjoy, I enjoy my Simon Rattle Beethoven's as well. And, but Mozart, obviously, I'm a huge enthusiast for Mozart as well. Um, I, Richard, I don't know, there are not many composers that I don't enjoy. I discovered the Derufle Requiem recently as well, which is also very beautiful um, in my collection of Requiems. So it's always nice, you know, when something comes along and you say, oh, I haven't heard that before, and, and it sort of just hits the right spot, isn't it? It certainly does. And you talked about Mozart. Here is the Lacrimosa from his Requiem, and this, in fact, was the very last piece that Mozart worked on. He was working on it when he died, and then it was finished off by his pupil and friend, Zussmeyer. But this is uh, the section from the Requiem where he actually died. I think it was after about bar 12 he got to. It's from the Mozart Requiem. That was the Lacrimosa from the Mozart Requiem and the choice of David Bullard, who's my guest in People of Note tonight. And as you will hear, that's the program that you're listening to on Classic 1027 with me, Richard Koch. And it happens every Sunday from 6 to 8. And by the way, if you would like to write to David, then just send the email to me, rcock at iafrica.com, rcock at iafrica.com. And I will pass on your letters. And we have been getting a lot of letters over the past few weeks, a lot of emails, so keep them coming, because it's lovely to hear from our listeners, and you can just tell us what you think. Maybe you're an old friend of David's, and you want to make contact with him again. So do please write to me, rcock at iafrica.com. Now, you know, unless, I, unless I owe you money, in which case don't write to <laughs> Well, if they do, I won't pass them on to you. Thanks, Richard. It's you're a, a pleasure. <laughs> so... 
Uh, your next uh, choice, we go to something rather different. This is a musical. And uh, I guess uh, South Africa's been pretty rich in musicals over the years. And we've certainly had this one in South Africa. And it's the wonderful West Side Story, which I'm sure you've seen live a couple of times. I saw it in Cape Town, I think it must have been two years ago. I lose track of these things. There was a wonderful, wonderful performance at the Artscape. I loved it. Went on a Sunday afternoon. It was magical. They do it so well. Yeah, I saw this uh, also, that same production I saw here in Joburg. And then I saw it, funnily enough, in a German production. We, we went on tour to Germany and in Magdeburg, outside the cathedral, uh, in the open air, they had a version there with, you know, with real cars. Actually, I thought of you at the time because they had some spectacular cars that came driving onto this plaza outside Magdeburg Cathedral. People jumping in and out of the cars and screeching tires. It was really quite spectacular. But you've chosen uh, a rather slow uh, section, one hand, one heart. Are you a romantic at heart, David? Oh, totally, totally. This is another piece that brings tears to my eyes, depending who's singing it. But I've got the Kiri Tekanawa uh, Carreras version myself. Um, and there's a little bit of sort of verbal stuff coming before it. But I just think this is beautiful. And it's such a contrast Rich, to the rest of the musical, isn't it? Which is sort of yeah. quite violent in some ways and quite sort of like Puerto Rican and excitable like America. This is just proves that Bernstein could write this most exquisite music. And I, I think it's a lovely, lovely contrast. Yeah. Beautiful well, piece. He was an amazing chap, actually, because he was such uh, – Bernstein I'm talking about was an amazing educator. He was a very accomplished speaker. Uh, composer, conductor. He was a real multitasker, and which which you have been in your life too. Yes, I, I wouldn't really compare myself with, with Bernstein, <laughs> but no, he was. Uh, he, he did so many things remarkably well. Yeah. Um, and uh, and this this is a lovely, lovely musical. Here it is: one hand, one heart from West Side Story. That was the great love song from West Side Story: one hand, one heart. Uh, by Leonard Bernstein, the choice of David Bullard, who's my guest in People of Note. And uh, another wonderful love story is Manon Lesko by Puccini. And I notice you've only got one Puccini here. And if you're this great romantic, which I know you are, uh, I'm surprised you didn't put in more love songs. Well, you know, the, the time is the problem. I mean, you know, as many of your guests have said, you know, you could have had 50 pieces instead of 14 or 15. I put this one in because Manon Lescaut is perhaps not the best-known Puccini opera. Um, you know, it would have been easy to put in Butterfly or La Boheme or Tosca or whatever else. But there is a version of this on YouTube as well from the New York Met because they were, they were uh, broadcasting operas for free. And I watched this a couple of weeks ago, uh, and it is, it is stunning. And it's the most beautiful opera all the way through. And this piece, I think, will probably sell it to those who have not heard the opera before because um, it's all very much in, in this sort of melodic vein, I would say. But hasn't it been an amazing time this the last four months for getting wonderful free material on on the internet? It has, and uh, look, I think full uh, full marks to the, the the Met. They did, I know, put stuff on at pre-arranged times that you could see. Um, it's look, it's not the same as being there, but you know, they do it the high definition stuff. I always used to enjoy going to Cinema Nouveau and watching and. Um, uh, those were lovely performances, apart from all the waffle in between the intervals. But uh, we're very lucky uh, that uh, you can f find an awful lot of stuff on YouTube which you can watch completely for free, even if it's little excerpts. You know, the quality is good, the sound is good, the visuals are good. And let's face it, if we're sort of stuck at home most of the time, we might as well actually do these things and give ourselves a, a, a little bit of, bit of a treat. Yeah, and I, I, can, I can recommend some of these uh, amazing... Uh, productions because uh, Sue and I were watching um, from Glyndebourne. We've watched a couple of productions and they are spectacular. We're about to watch The Rake's Progress, which is the next one, with uh, sets by David Hockney. And I mean, you can see, you know, some of the great productions in the world, free and in high definition, and they're wonderful. No, they are. Yeah. So here comes Puccini. This is from Manon Lesco. Donna non vidi mai. That was from Manon Lesco from Act One by Puccini. Donna non vidi mai. The choice of David Bullard.
And we're sort of coming towards the end of the program now, David, and I notice, <laughs> and I, I, I don't mean this in any sort of ghoulish way, but your final choice was, Oh, Better Far to Live and Die, the Pirate King's <laughs> song. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my that's my that's my party piece um, after a couple of drinks. I have always regretted. You listened to a lot of stuff. I wasn't a tenor. I know you do your countertenor. I actually saw you in um, in Carmina Burana performing that. And I think some of the finest pieces have been written for the tenor voice. And I can't hit the notes. But what I can do is I can do. Uh, I am a pirate king, and it requires a couple of glasses of wine. But I can get quite. Um, quite sort of, you know, sturdy about that. Well, and I can I imagine you, you actually, wire, don't you? yeah, I can imagine you in a pirate's outfit and a, a oh, parrot on your shoulder. The reason I, uh, Gilbert Sullivan, the lyrics are so good. I mean, he's almost, uh, he could almost be a columnist, couldn't he? Uh, the satire on the politics of the time. So I love the lyrics and I love the music and I love the sort of general rumbunctiousness, I suppose, of most of Gilbert and Sullivan's, um, what do you call them, comic operas, operettas? Yeah, I don't know. operettas, I think, yeah. And, and yes. uh, the, the amazing thing about um, Gilbert and Sullivan is that with slightly different narration, which I've done from time to time, they are still very apposite today. Yes, they are indeed. Uh, yes, I think some of the lyrics as well um, could be equally applied here. Yeah. Um, with, uh, what what what's the line is away to the cheating world go you where pirates all are well to do. I couldn't don't think we could apply that to South Africa, could we? <laughs> yeah, and and it's amazing actually when you because uh, um, uh, we used to get someone to to change the the sort of spoken parts of the text. Alan Swerdler used to do it a lot for us, and it was amazing how these the stories actually applied to today. They were perfect for today. So I think it's wonderful that your your final choice is from the Pirates of Penzance, Gilbert and Sullivan, Oh, Better Far to Live and Die, Here It Comes. That was the wonderful Pirate King song, Oh, Better Far to Live and Die, from the Pirates of Penzance by Gilbert and Sullivan. And that was the final choice from my good friend David Bullard, who's speaking to us from the winelands of the Western Cape. David, thank you very much. I'm very grateful to your wife for allowing us to have you for an hour or two here on Classic 1027. So please say thank you to her. And I noticed talking of parrots on your shoulders that uh, you have a cat also. So I hope your cat was not disturbed by your yeah. broadcast. Cat, we, we had to move the cat out just in case it wanted to go. But Astro's adopted us. So he's gone out. He'll be lying somewhere else in the house. But Richard, thank you very much. Indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure to, uh, to, to talk to you for, for an hour or so and to listen to the glorious music. And I really do hope we see you down here waving that stick around in front of lots of musicians before very long. I mean, we're missing you. We're missing all of the live music. And, and let's, let's hope that uh, all of this passes and we get back to some sort of musical normality, if no other normality. But in the meantime, you can stay tuned to Classic 1027 because that's where you've been listening to People of Note. And my guest has been David Bullard, businessman and columnist. His famous column was called Out to Lunch. And you can still read his columns on Politics Web. So, David, just give us those details. You just go to politicsweb.co.za or what? politicsweb.co.za and there's lots of other very good stuff to read there on an ongoing basis uh, and it's uh, it's sort of like um, intelligent well-written stuff uh, which will uh, which will fill in some of the gaps that uh, may be left by the mainstream media oh uh, what a bitchy comment no no mustn't say <laughs> and there you are if you want to get in touch with david then please write to me and i will pass on your emails r c o c k r cock at iafrica.com. Thanks to Matabataba Khadebe, who helps us put these programs together, and thank you all at home for listening. Until next time, from all of us here at Classic 1027, we wish you a very good evening.